Today's scripture comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 10 to 21. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good afternoon. <clears throat> My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I want to welcome you to our church on this first Sunday of 2019. And uh, it's January 6th, so I'm sure by now most of you have already broken your New Year's resolutions. Where do you stand on New Year's resolutions? I know especially in New York City, people kind of roll their eyes at, at the whole New Year festivities in general. While the rest of the world goes crazy on New Year's Eve and tries to cram into Times Square in the pouring rain, we New Yorkers know better. We don't get carried away by New Year's. It's, it's just an arbitrary date of demarcation. Maybe just another excuse to go out with our friends. Why even bother making resolutions that you know will be broken in a few days or weeks? Let's be practical. Let's be realistic. And if that is you, I say, shame on you for being so cynical. <laughs> then there are those who love to make New Year's resolutions, right? Every year. It's a fresh start. No matter how many times I've failed in the past, this is another chance to get it right. So this will be the year that I finally quit my bad habits and I adopt a few good ones. This year, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to smile and laugh more. This is the year that I will be a better me. I'm going to get my life organized, starting with my apartment. I'm going to crush it at work. I'm going to meet and marry the one. I'm going to be more fiscally responsible. I'm, this year is going to be great. And to you, I say, probably not. <laughs> However you approach New Year's, at the very least, it's a good opportunity to reassess life, 
to see how you're doing, to, to kind of get back to things that really matter. And this is why every year at Exilic, we kick off the new year with a sermon series on the DNA of our church. We revisit, we reassess our values. We kind of check to see how we're doing, and we get back on track. So we're going to do two weeks on our name, we're going to do two weeks on our mission, and two weeks on our vision. So today we begin with our strange name, Exilic. What does it mean, and why did we name our church Exilic? Well, the dictionary definition of Exilic is the condition or period of being forced to live away from one's native country or home, especially as a punishment. Simply put, Exilic is the adjectival form of exile. It describes a condition or period of living away from one's native country or home. So the definition of exilic, it kind of hinges on one's proximity or distance to home. Someone who is at home or in his or her native country is not an exile. An exile is someone who is separated from home. So politically speaking, I am not an exile. Because the United States is my native country. I was born here. But an immigrant, a refugee, a defector would qualify as an exile. So it, it kind of depends on your circumstances. So our passage today is one that we've preached on before in our Philippians series and one that Dr. Harvey preached on really great last week. But I hope today to focus specifically on the exilic life as Paul describes it. We see that spiritually, if we believe in Jesus, we're exiles, and we're called to live a distinctly exilic life. So I want to point you to three aspects of the exilic life in our passage today. First, a new identity. Second, a new way of life. And third, a new destiny. So those three things. First, a new identity. Verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Paul declares that if you're a Christian, your real identity is now defined by a new citizenship. And strangely enough, it's citizenship of a city that you've never seen, that you've never visited before, a city that lies ahead. And this was a very familiar theme for the Philippians in particular. You see, about 100 years before Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church, in 42 BC, Octavian, who would later become Caesar Augustus, he defeated his enemies decisively in a battle just outside of Philippi. And right after that battle, what he did was he settled his most loyal troops in the city. And he conferred upon Philippi the distinction, the status of colony. And this was very special because he didn't do this to all of his conquered territories. He did it to Philippi. And what this meant was this. If you lived in Philippi, if you were a citizen of Philippi, if you weren't a slave, if you were a free citizen of Philippi, you were now also a citizen of Rome itself. You were now entitled to the benefits of Roman citizenship, which meant Certain things, uh, for example, um, all of the conquered territories had to pay imperial taxes to Rome. As a Roman citizen, you are now exempt. Also, you are now afforded due process, according to the Roman court of law. 
These are just some of the benefits that you now receive because you are now a Roman citizen. So Philippi citizens are now Rome's citizens. So Paul connects this to the Christian life for the Philippians. He says, most of you have never set foot in Rome, but you're Roman citizens. And guess what? You have never set foot in the heavenly, heavenly city, but you are now a citizen there. So what does this mean for us? It means this. If you trust in Jesus, if you are a Christian, whatever your origin is in terms of earthly city, you have had another higher citizenship conferred on you. This is your new identity. It's not, it's, it goes beyond national citizenship. It's higher than categories like race, sex, family, profession, reputation, or any other association or orientation. Paul writes, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he mentions two things, Savior and Lord. Christians are exiles who have a Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. This means two things. Christians are people who've been saved by Jesus, and they're people who live for Jesus. Saved by Jesus, live for Jesus. Jesus is everything for the Christian. Paul says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, to participate in his sufferings, to become like him in his death, and so somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. I haven't already obtained this. I haven't already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. See, knowing Jesus is what the new identity is all about. Becoming like him in his death and resurrection. Paul says, I haven't already obtained this yet. I haven't arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So here's what he says. Paul tries to take hold of the one who has taken hold of him. That phrase, take hold, it, I think it's better translated as seize, grasp, and not let go. So you do everything you can to grab it as hard as you can. So when you watch a football game and someone fumbles the ball, what do you see? The entire field becomes about one thing. Get it. Take hold of it. Grab it. Take possession of it. Paul says Jesus did that to him. You know, this is a Greek phrase that, that's commonly used in hunting. So Paul is saying that while he was running away, Jesus tracked him. Jesus pursued him. Jesus hunted him down and captured him. Paul was running away, but Jesus took hold of him and saved him. How did Jesus do that? Did he wrestle Paul to the ground? Did he force him down? No. Paul talks about this a lot in Philippians already. He says that Jesus was in very nature God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus overpowers Paul by himself being overpowered on the cross for Paul. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. This is the new identity of the exile. A Christian is someone who has been saved from his sin by Jesus, by Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. We're given new identities as citizens of heaven who now live to pursue Jesus. So it's interesting. Paul is saying, I was pursued, but now once Jesus got me, I'm pursuing him. So the hunted becomes the hunter, and that is the Christian life. An exile is someone who embraces the cross of Jesus Christ, who takes hold of it because Jesus has taken hold of him. But Paul mentions in verse 18 that the alternative to following Jesus is to walk as an enemy of the cross. So it's interesting that there's no neutrality. You're either saved by the cross or an enemy of the cross. Friends, I want to ask you today, if you're a Christian do you realize that Jesus has pursued you? That Jesus has taken hold of you? Jesus looked at you and said, I need her. I need him. And he loved you so much that he gave up everything to hunt you down and to take hold of you. And if you're in this room and if you're not a Christian, and if you're seeking, if you're asking questions, or you're visiting our church to, to maybe see what the Bible is all about, may I suggest to you that maybe the reason why you're here today, it's because in some way Jesus is pursuing you. The reason why you keep coming back and you haven't given up on this faith thing is because Jesus is working on you. He's hunting you down. That sounds scary, I know, but maybe. My second point is a new way of life. Look at verse 18. This is what Paul says. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So Paul here, he's talking about another group of people. And these people, they're not exiles. These people bring him to tears. These are most likely the people who claim to be Christians, but in everyday life, they live as functional atheists. They say that Jesus is their Savior and Lord, but they're not living under the Lordship of Jesus. They carry around their heaven passports, but they live in contradiction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't follow in the example of other Christians like Paul. And we see this again and again in the Bible. There are genuine Christians, and then there are those whose lives don't match what they say they believe. And Jesus talks about this a lot, about when at the end he's going to come and separate people. He's going to separate the wheat and the weeds. He's going to separate the sheep and the goats. And it's kind of scary. Because Paul says, many, many, not some live as enemies of the cross of Christ, many. What that means is 
Many people identify as Christians in their minds, but they are not genuine. And it gets scarier because Paul says their destiny is destruction. So the stakes are very real here. He goes on. He says, their God is their stomach. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means this. Their lives are governed by their appetites. They live to satiate their desires. That's what life is all about. Rather than loving Jesus and counting everything else as rubbish, like we heard last week, these people love the world, what the world offers, the charms of the world, and ultimately they count Jesus as rubbish. So they live to fulfill their desires. Every day is about what I want, what I need, emotional fulfillment, sexual fulfillment, financial fulfillment, material fulfillment, physical fulfillment, etc., etc., etc. Paul says that their glory is in their shame. What that means is they're seeking glory where only shame exists, which is in sin and apart from God. They're looking for glory in the wrong places. For example, career is good. It's a good thing, but it's not meant to ultimately fulfill you. The same goes for money, for sex, for, for, for physical beauty, for relationships, for physical substances. When you glory in these things, they will lead to shame, isolation, and unhappiness. So how do we know? How do we know if we belong to this group? Right? Because if we're honest, if we're being honest, you know, my heart, serves many of these things as idols. So how do I know that my destiny is not destruction? Because I struggle with sin. I, I rebel against God. Don't we all do that? Don't we often live one way on Sundays at church and then another way entirely in our places of work when we're out with our friends or when we're at home with our families? Don't we often go through the motions? Don't we often fake it? How do I know if I am truly a Christian? Well, if you study this passage, you'll see that when Paul describes the exilic life, it's full of activity. There's change, there's movement, <clears throat> there's action, there's transformation. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or I've already arrived, but I press on to take hold. He goes on, here's what I do. Forgetting what's behind, straining toward what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. There's, there's, there's movement, there's, there's, there's effort, there's calories burned. And even when you're not moving... Paul says, we're awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he say? He says, eagerly awaiting. Eagerly awaiting. This, this, is, it, it, this is like my, my kids waiting for Christmas morning, where they can't sit still. Even when they're still, they're not. That's the Christian life. But listen to how he describes this other group of people. He says this, their God is their stomach, 
their mind is set on earthly things. The picture here, the image here, is of someone who is chained, who is enslaved to their appetites, not moving. They're stuck. They're, they're, they're stagnating. They're atrophying. Their minds are set. And the only movement from them is when they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So the, the only time they actually move is when they walk further away from God. You know, the Christian life, it's not absent of sin. But the Christless life, the life without Christ, it is absent of growth, of movement, of, of change, of genuine transformation. So a good question or, or set of questions to ask yourself this New Year's is this. What is your life trajectory? You know, where are you positioned right now? Where, which way are you going? Are you maturing at all, even if it's really, really, really slowly? Are you struggling against your sin? Even when you keep losing, are you still fighting? Is there a fight in you? Do you care? Are you trying, even when you're stumbling, to follow Jesus? Well, if that is you, then here's the good news, that our confidence is not on our own sinlessness, but our confidence is in the righteousness of someone else. And that is perhaps the biggest difference between a citizen of heaven and an enemy of the cross. Verse 16, only let us live up to what we have already attained. We don't have to prove ourselves to God. He's already proven everything for us. You know, if your God is your stomach, if your God is your appetite, then you have to constantly feed it. You have to constantly serve it. It's never enough. So if, if your God is your career, then you have to work feverishly to find satisfaction in your career. And if you lose it, you are devastated. You have to constantly perform or you risk losing it all. The pressure is enormous. But for the Christian, we're already accepted. We're already approved by God. We can live up to what we have already attained in Jesus. It completely frees us up. It takes the pressure off. Let me give you an example. I took my son Andy, he's four years old, to a ropes course at the Palisades Mall in West Nyack, New York. And this is a huge indoor mall, and, and if you haven't seen the ropes course, it's the world's largest indoor ropes course. So you, you kind of get tethered in to, to, to this thing, and basically uh, you have to kind of balance on, on beams and, and tight ropes, and it's this whole elaborate ropes course, there's a big zip line, um, but the thing is, you're four stories up in the air. So, you know, Andy met the height requirement, so I figured, you know, this will be a good thing for he and I to do together. Uh, nice, fun, relaxing, challenging activity. Um, I was wrong. <laughs> he was uh, terrified. Um, you know, I kept trying to tell him that the rope is going to hold you. You're not going to fall. 
you know what? I'm holding you too. You're not going to fall. Just keep walking. Keep walking. And basically, um, we were moving an inch a minute because he was crying at the top of his lungs. He didn't trust me. He didn't trust the rope that was holding him. You know, I became that tiger parent who was yelling at his crying kid to hurry up, um, stop crying, and uh, it was a total fail. I think this is one of the stories he's going to tell his therapist in 20 years about how his dad tried to kill him. Um, You know, but the workers, I think they felt bad. They let me take him instead to the toddler course. And this is for kids way younger than Andy. Um, And it's basically the same, similar things. It's just beams and ropes, but it's on ground level. So, you know, it's even though I wasn't on the course with him, man, he, he, he was fine. Um, the fear was completely gone. He was basically running the course. He was being silly. He was having so much fun. Why? Because he knew he wouldn't fall. He knew he could do it. The fear was gone, so the experience changed completely. That's how the Christian lives. We know we can do it because it's not our own ability. We're freed up to now run this race knowing we're going to get to the end. We're going to make it. Paul compares this exilic life to a race. Verse 13, forget what's behind straining towards what's ahead. Press on towards the goal to win the prize. Imagine you're running a race. And as you kind of set up on the starting blocks, you're waiting for the pistol to go off. And even before that happens, you already know with absolute certainty that you're going to win. You know it. It's guaranteed that you're going to win. Doesn't that change the way you run? I mean, we see this in sports all the time, right? A basketball player is, gets on a fast break, and, and basically there's no defenders. It's just him in the rim, and now he can kind of prepare and execute this really fancy dunk. Or a wide receiver kind of sheds his defenders, and it's just him in the end zone, and, and before he even crosses the goal line, he's already in his end zone celebration. We know we're going to win the race. The, the ending is already written. We know how the story ends. It ends up with, the, with us on the winning side. So how do we run it? Well, athletes, they, they, they showboat and they bring glory to themselves. But as Christians, we have a greater motivation. We don't bring glory to ourselves, but we can make our Lord and Savior, Jesus, look really good. And we can help the people who are running with us. Remember, Paul says here, join together in following my example. Don't do it alone. Join together. So what we can do is when we see a brother and sister stumble, we can pick them up. We can stop. We can stop running. We can pick them up and run together. And that's the picture of the exilic life. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to be crippled by fear that we will fail. We have a new way of life. My last point is that we have a new destiny. The exile's destiny is not destruction, but it's home. Home. The hope of heaven. You know, the more you savor that hope now, 
the realer that hope is for you, the more it's going to change the way you live. Last week, someone from Long Island won almost half a billion dollars in the lottery. And as far as I know, he or she still hasn't come forward to claim the ticket. But I imagine that that person's life has already changed, right? Um, They're not going to care about the $40 that their friend borrowed from them last week. Uh, Their work performance suddenly is not all important to them. Their family's financial concerns, gone. Even though not one cent has been transferred yet. That's the Christian life. Friends, we are holding a winning ticket. Far more valuable than half a billion dollars. And that should change the way we live now. Dramatically. You know, in Christ, we have an eternal inheritance that will last forever. A day is coming when there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more sin, poverty, hunger, cancer, abuse, war will no longer exist. Every single tear will be wiped away and every broken thing will be fixed. But that's not even the prize. That's not even the prize that Paul talks about in verse 14. Do you know what the prize is? Apostle John talks about it in Revelation 22. He says this, we will see his face. We will see him as he is. We're going to see Jesus. We will no longer believe in Jesus by faith, but we shall behold him by sight. And we will realize in that moment, more clearly than ever, that this is why we were made. Everything we've ever wanted, everything we've ever dreamed of is in the face of Jesus. And until that day comes, let's stop settling for less. Let's stop setting our minds on earthly things, things that will never satisfy. Let's forget what lies behind. Let's strain towards what's ahead. Let's eagerly await the day when we will see our Lord face to face. Can I end with a word of encouragement? I was watching um, The Lion King with my son recently, and there's that one scene that I'm sure you've heard other pastors talk about where Simba's in the wilderness, and and he's with Timon and Pumbaa. He's eating grubs. He's living that uh, Hakuna Makata, uh, enjoying that carefree life. And then his father, Mufasa, appears to him, and he reminds him of who he really is. You are my son. You're a king. I know that some of you, maybe even many of you, um, have had a really rough 2018. Some of you are, are, are limping and staggering into 2019. And you're desperately hoping that life will turn out better for you this year. Can I give you the same words that Mufasa gave to Simba? Remember who you are. You are a citizen of heaven. Not not some podunk, inconsequential city. Heaven. And you are the child of not a great king, but the king of kings. The God of the universe. So hold your head high. There is not one thing that happened to you in 2018 that God has not orchestrated for your good. 
There is not one thing that man can do, anyone can do to you, that will take away one iota of your eternal reward. There is not one sin in your life that Jesus has not forgiven. There is not one debt or obstacle that the Holy Spirit cannot help you overcome. There is not a single painful memory or experience that will not fade into oblivion on the other side of glory. Not one tear you shed will go unwiped by our Savior. Remember who you are. You are an exile who's going to make it home. Don't you dare forget it. Let's pray. Father, may our battle cry in 2019 be the words that we sang earlier. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Christ my victory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It is one for me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.